Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my huge pleasure to welcome Professor Matt Hulls onto the podcast today. He is the head of human genetics at the Wellcome Sanger Institute and senior group leader of the Hulls Group, which is obviously named after him, as well as being an honorary professor of human genetics and genomics at the University of Cambridge and the co-founder of Congenica, which is a big diagnostic decision support platform. Um, Matt, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a great honor and thanks for inviting me. If we can start with you're now leading this big group at Wellcome, you're a fellow of the Royal Society, um, you know, sort of storied leader in the genomics field. Just tell us a bit about how five-year-old Matt became Matt Hulls that we see today. How did you get into the field and how did you get excited about it and so on? I guess I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So for most of my school career, I, I kind of hedged my bets and took the <laughs> options that kind of least required me to narrow down what I could potentially do in the future. And um, <laughs> And so I ended up doing biochemistry at university because it was a very broad subject and it allowed me to go in lots of different directions potentially. And I just really discovered through actually a kind of a, an extended project during my undergraduates that I was really interested in the genetics side and actually genetics and evolution initially. Um, and that really kind of stimulated me to go and, and do a PhD, which wasn't something I was necessarily expecting to do. And that was very much in the kind of how do we use genetics to understand human prehistory. So it was much more about population genetics than about medical genetics. Wow, um, so this is sort of all the way back to how do we get from kind of great apes to humans or more like cave, cave people or like which, what sort of period or scope? Yeah, so, so actually, I mean, population genetics, evolutionary genetics allows you to go, you know, everything from what happened in the last few thousand years to way back to the beginning of life. Um, the bit that I was most focused on was, was how did humans get to where they got to in the world and how we can use genetics as a tool, as a record of the past to trace these prehistoric migrations. And actually during my PhD, I focused most on the prehistoric migrations of the Polynesians through the Pacific and how you could trace using genetic lineages, which islands they'd got to when and in what order. Wow, that is incredibly cool. I spent a number of years of my childhood in New Zealand in the, the far north. Um, we learned Maori at school and, you know, it was a very sort of cosmopolitan mix of Polynesian Islanders there. So amazing, fascinating subject. And so from the PhD, you've sort of largely continued in a sort of academic path. How has that kind of played out? And if I'm a student today wanting to kind of get into the field, how should I think about it? Well, certainly you know, finding something that you're passionate about and then finding a supervisor who, who you really get on with, who you think is going to, you know, invest in you. It's, it's, it's often much more about the individual than it is about the, the topic. Um, mm. I was quite lucky to find a com good combination, a guy called Mark Jobling in Leicester, who was, was pretty young at the time. I think I was his second PhD student, but gave me a fantastic kind of training, really, you know, 
invested in, in, and, and looked after me during that kind of you know really formative period of your scientific career. Um, and so I got, got a real passion for tracing prehistoric migrations. It's something I wanted to do you know, after you know, my PhD and wanted to continue with it. So I actually did a postdoc in, in an archaeological research institute um, led by a very forward-looking archaeologist called Colin Renfrew, who really thought that archaeologists and geneticists should be in the same building, talking the same language as much as possible. Um, and so, wow. I, so I, was, I did a postdoc there. Um, I have a I have a mental image of you as kind of Indiana Jones in a dusty desert somewhere, kind of uh, fighting the Nazis. So is that what it was like? No, no definitely not. So no, it was, it, it, it was me, me in a lab coat talking to the people who were who were actually doing that, you know, um, over coffee, um, and thinking what a much more exotic life they led. But wow. uh, so but then then partway during my that that postdoc, I kind of really stumbled across a kind of much more biomedically kind of focused kind of uh, insight. And I really was stumbled across it, but I, but I, and it was uh, because we were using the human Y chromosome to trace lineages through the Pacific. And it was just as a human genome sequence was starting to come out and a portion of the human Y chromosome came out. And I realized that this, this bit of the Y chromosome that I was looking at that was telling me about a particular type of migration in a particular part of the world, was also critically important for male fertility. And if you deleted that part of the Y chromosome, you, you, a male can no longer produce sperm. And that kind of insight about a, a, how a rare variant can have a dramatic effect on a person's life and how one can use you know, my population genetics training to kind of make insights in medical genetics was, was for me a really kind of pivotal moment. And, um, and I was just then very fortunate that the, because the, I was clearly very much in the wrong place there to kind of take that forward. But I was very fortunate that the Sanger Institute was at that point in time pivoting from being a genome sequencing kind of factory to becoming a, a research institute um, driven by its faculty research interests. And, and, uh, and somehow I managed to sneak under the radar and, and, um, and, and join as a kind of junior faculty. Fantastic. And you've built on that biomedical insight into this whole program around the deciphering of developmental uh, disorders program, the DDD program, um, which is kind of an, an ancestor in some ways of the, of the 100,000 Genomes Project. Let's sort of dive into the meat of this. You and your team are looking at genetic information, clinical information, um, other data sources to try and really unpick these incredibly complex questions around how we as humans develop, how some of the quirks in some of those inputs can lead to different outcomes for us as kids, as humans. How has that work evolved over the last, I guess, about 20 years since the kind of heavy lifting of the Human Genome Project? And what do you and the team kind of do day to day? I realize that's a huge scope of a question, but maybe like take us by the hand of how this work actually gets done and how that's changed over the last little while. So, so, yeah, I think the, the key thing was that the genome was both an end in itself, but also a beginning for a whole technological revolution, because it's just one genome. Um, and yeah. really, if we want to know something about differences between us, whether it's disease or, or, or not disease-based, we really need to understand how the difference, genetic differences on that one genome cause those different changes, why we're different from one another. And so it's all about the genetic variation. And what we really needed after the genome was then cost-effective ways to identify the genetic variants that people carry. 
and the genome serves as a as a template that allows you to design those assays. So that's the key kind of point. And the first one off the block was that using microarray methods to detect very large deletions and duplications in individuals. So there's this basic point about the human genome with one genome, but if we're looking for where is an individual difference, you know, the one human who the human genome was based on something that was in their genome might be in every genome, it might be a unique variant to them. Um, so we need that broader perspective about almost what does normal look like before you can start to assess whether some individual piece of the genome is normal or unusual or quirky in some way. Yeah, and in reality, what, what tends to happen is that is the kind of a new technology comes along and a group of people very focused on, on patients with rare diseases immediately wants to apply that technology and discovers a huge amount of new variation they couldn't previously see. And in parallel with that, another group of people really wants to understand population variation around the world. Uh, and they're characterizing this kind of general population variation. And, and it's really the combination of those two types of data. What does normal look like, for want of a better phrase, and, and what unusual genetic variants do, do patients with rare diseases carry? Uh, and it's the combination and, the, and the, the, the comparison of those two that's really powerful. And so what was interesting to me was that on one hand, one could take a data set and, and, and do population genetics and understand mutation processes and selection and these things that population geneticists care about. Um, and on the other hand, exactly the same technology in a different set of individuals would, would say, here is a clear cause of disease. This is going to be meaningful for the family um, for all the reasons that diagnoses are, me are, are meaningful. And, and one of the big challenges I think was, was when the first technology came along, which was the, the microarrays pulling up these big, um, it created a new challenge for clinical geneticists, which was this bit of, the, of our genome is deleted. Um, I don't really know much about this bit of the genome because I'm now looking across the whole genome and I've never really done that before at this scale. You know, how can I find out if this bit of the genome is important and relevant to the disease, or is just something that's just, you know, is benign and, and, and it's not relevant to disease. And what that stimulated was this, this, the importance of taking genetic variation in data, aligning it with what we know about the genome and what we see in healthy individuals. Uh, and, and that was the genesis of that was actually, was, was Helen Firth, uh, and Nigel Carter at Sanger coming up with the idea of Decipher uh, and creating a kind of international web portal where clinicians could post on behalf of their patients, um, I have this genetic variant, I think maybe the cause of disease, but I'm just not sure what tools can we provide that help the clinician interpret that? And can we identify any patients anywhere else in the world that might have a similar genetic variant and a similar condition? Uh, and that's proven to be extremely powerful and has and that kind of insight initially from, from looking at microarrays and large chunks of DNA that are gained and lost has, has you know, transitioned in, in exactly the same way into the next generation sequencing technology that came along about five years later and started to say, well, here's this patient who's got this rare, seemingly damaging variant in this gene that I don't really know much about. Are there any other patients who have similar damaging variants in that gene? And so that kind of matching kind of process internationally has proven to be incredibly powerful with defining new conditions that, that couldn't be done just by looking at that patient in isolation. Absolutely. And um, within that context, 
how did the cohort for deciphering developmental disease come about? How did you pick people to go into that cohort and what kind of analyses have you done on them? It kind of started actually as, as predominantly an array-based project to look at large CMVs. And as the project was just starting off, that's when the next-gen sequencing revolution came about. And, and so we rapidly pivoted to, to doing exome sequencing, so sequencing all of the genes in the genome. Um, and, and that proved to be incredibly powerful. Um, I think the thing that we, the insight that certainly Helen and, and Nigel had at the, at the inception of, of the DDD study was that comparing the DNA of a child with a developmental disorder to their parents from the outset was going to be incredibly valuable. Uh, and that collecting DNA from the parents at the same time was going to help hugely in the interpretation of the genetic variation you see in the child. And that, that kind of intuition you know, which came partly from, from the CMV work, from being able to identify a, a copy number variant that was present in a child but was absent from either parent, was, was hugely influential in interpreting whether that genetic variant was likely to be the cause of the child's uh, disorder or not. And transitioning that into next generation sequencing and that kind of what we now know as the TRIO-based approach and we, we kind of think of as standard in developmental disorders, um, that really came out of some of that early work in, in looking at those large deletions and duplications. And so we, from the outset of the project, really wanted to engage the, you know, the family, the child, their parents, collect DNA from them, and systematically collect phenotype data. Um, because it, one of the challenges that we had with the, the Cypher portal was that although one could uh, submit genetic information and phenotypic information, getting systematic you know, systematic phenotypic information was really challenging. This is well in advance of the kind of the, the era that we now live in with respect to electronic health records. Um, but it's still we, tough, right? <laughs> which is still tough. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but so, so, so we, we were really fortunate with the clinicians driving the project, Helen Firth, David Fitzpatrick, um, working very closely with the, the hundreds of clinical geneticists in the UK and working out what was the phenotypic information that was really important, was gonna be really meaningful to, to kind of capture, that could be captured on the ground by clinicians that would sit alongside and enrich the genetic data. And that again was a fundamental, their fundamental insight that really empowered the whole project and allowed it to evolve with the genomic technology. And try and bring this to life for us a bit with, I don't know if there are any individual family stories that you can share, but what kind of conditions were picked up through the program? Did, did people get referred to it because they had presented in the NHS with a condition and kind of people didn't know what to do? And what kind of impact could a family see through taking part in the program? So it's very, very much a, a kind of partnership between the central team at the Sanger Institute and all of the clinical, clinical genetic centers in the UK and in, in, and in the Republic of Ireland. And, and essentially those clinical geneticists were caring for those families, thought they had a genetic condition, but couldn't find the genetic cause of that condition, but were pretty confident it had an underlying genetic cause. And, and, and we weren't going to be too restrictive at the outset about um, the kind of phenotypic criteria. They had to be quite extreme and, um, and, and, and therefore more likely to have a genetic cause, but we really trusted the clinical geneticists' intuition uh, about is this likely to be genetics and, th and that that I think was a really good starting point for the project. 
And what kind of symptoms would, would that be? I don't know if there's a typical case, but is that things like uh, seizures or I guess there's this broad term of like potential failure to thrive, but like how would that present for a, for a kid and their family? Yeah, so about, about um, 85, 90% of the cohort have, have neurodevelopmental disorders. So, so intellectual disability or, or, um, or developmental delay if they're younger, the average age of recruitment to the project is about six. And that's typically when a child has, has you know, really started to struggle in the first year or two of school, even if parents have been able to you know, detect it and you know, been concerned earlier. That's often when they get through the clinical system to a clinical geneticist and clinical tests are done. So that's typically the, the median age that we found was around six. And, and you're right. So about a quarter of those children will have seizures, uh, about 10% will have um, other organ malformations, heart malformations being the most common. But, uh, but, but in amongst that, there's, there's you know, actually going to be many thousands of different conditions represented in the cohort. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and actually, we were deliberately taking a kind of all-comers approach with the idea with, with that maybe a condition might not look the same in two different children. Maybe it might manifest itself right. slightly differently in different children. And unless we take a kind of broad approach, we won't capture that. And that's certainly turned out to be true. Okay, so I'm going to drop two quotes in from former GWAD podcasts here. The first quote is one I love from Eric Topol, which is, every disease is a rare disease because it presents in you. And I think this is very much the point you're making here about the same disease can manifest differently in different kids, depending on some combination of different uh, glitches or quirks in the genetics, differences in uh, environment and exposure and so on. The second quote is from um, you and Ashley in Stanford, um, who talks about the process of gathering clues and doing detective work, kind of like Sherlock Holmes, to try and understand what is going on with this kid or, or adult for that matter. But, um, help us understand how you and the team kind of gear up to do that Sherlock Holmes work. You know, you've got clues in different places. How do you get to the kind of aha moment? Yeah, so I think one of the, the approaches we've tried to do is, is, is maybe a little bit different from, from what's been done in, in some other centres where maybe they've had a, a smaller number of patients. Um, they've invested a lot in, in characterising those patients and then, they, and then they undertake the Sherlock Holmes type work that you, you kind of describe. We thought one of the biggest advantages of, of having a national health service is by casting that net widely about, about bringing together a really large cohort of families and then developing new statistical methods that enable us to, to rather than have that in particular, you know, Sherlock Holmesian insight into one particular family, we can actually say, using the power of statistics, here is a gene that we really ought to be paying much more close attention to. These are the families that look like they've got a damaging genetic variant in that gene and take this really strong genotype-driven approach to identifying new conditions and also challenge ourselves from the outset of the project in the same way that you guys at Genomics England have challenged yourself and say, let's make this work at scale diagnostically. Let's take on the challenge of informatically searching for the needle in a haystack in an individual's DNA, let's do it in such a way that it can benefit thousands of, of patients. Um, and, and that was something that we really kind of stepped up to from the outset and certainly created sleepless nights and, uh, and stresses and strains along the way. But ultimately, we think is very much in keeping with our 
kind of ethos of the National Health Service about not just solving the, the one or two cases, but actually providing a service that, that actually works for a population. So that point about equity of access and breadth of impact, I think, is, is hugely inspiring. And in, in that context, I'm guessing that in some clinical areas, you're seeing real insight at scale from these approaches. And you say, right, we've, okay, we've, we've cracked this area. In, in other areas, it's probably still more complex or unsolved. What kind of impact are we seeing in terms of the kinds of diagnostic rates that we see in different areas? And what do you think is the next chapter for kids, adults, families who haven't yet had a primary diagnosis, but are still you know, living their lives with those uh, symptoms? So th- th- this is something we've been just been looking at really um, carefully just recently. And Caroline Wright's been very much um, leading on this part of the, the kind of team that I that, that I co-lead. You know, you know, it's very much a teamwork. And and what Caroline has been asking um, has been what are the factors that influence whether somebody whether we can diagnose somebody through DVD. You know, out of that, we on average we can diagnose about thirty-five to forty percent of families that come through DDD, but clearly we're not diagnosing, you know, up to two thirds of families. And if we look at those factors, there's a number of really intriguing things in there. So we do, we do a better job at diagnosing girls than we do boys. We do a better job of diagnosing um, families where there's only one affected child than when there's two affected children. We do a better job of diagnosing families where we can get DNA from both parents from where we can't get DNA from both parents. And we can also do a, a worse job in diagnosing families uh, with who have African ancestry. Um, and so, so it starts, well, you can only tease these patterns out when you look across many thousands of families, but it does really point towards the areas where we really need to push, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, how do we make diagnostics work better for single parent families? How do we make it work better across different ethnicities? Um, what are the kind of challenges that we can tackle there? Um, so I think that really helps us know where to push on. From a scientific perspective, um, one of the things we can also do is say, let's take out all of the diagnoses in this large cohort, and then let's look at the remaining patients that we haven't diagnosed, and let's see, compare them to a control population who don't have disorders. And let's say, where does the damaging variation look like it's still remaining? And we can see that there's still a lot of damaging rare genetic variation in protein coding genes in those undiagnosed cases. So in many cases, we have identified the variant that is at the root cause of the child's condition, but we haven't yet gathered enough evidence that that particular gene is associated with disease. And so what that speaks to us is what we really need to do is increase the size of the populations beyond the 13,000 families that we work with in in DDD. We need to combine the data with Genomics England, with collaborators outside the UK. And only then can we start to gather enough evidence to say, yes, this gene really is associated. Um, So there's that class of missing diagnoses, which is where we've discovered the variant, but we just don't have enough evidence that gene associated with disease. Or in we, some cases, I guess you might need to characterize a new disease almost, right? If we understand the genetic cause, we understand the set of symptoms, but it, it may it may or may not match to an existing kind of disease definition almost. It's that kind of almost inchoate space, right? 
Yes, and so, so this is where the kind of discovery process goes hand in hand with the diagnostic process, is mm. you have to make those discoveries to make those new diagnoses. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing that w the data is pointing towards is that there's a, there's a quite a, a in, amongst those undiagnosed children, the role of damaging genetic variation that is inherited from a parent who is seemingly much less affected or not affected at all to the degree of the child is really quite important. And so what that's pointing us towards the idea that genetic variants in different contexts might have different severities of effect. We don't understand that nearly so much. It's a much more complex way of looking at genetics that, that um, is challenging both from a scientific perspective to understand, but also from a clinical perspective of how to use that information. And analytically, that's presumably extraordinarily complex to unpick because there may be some other variation in some other part of the genome that may be kind of countermanding the deleterious effect in the first part of the genome you're looking at and so on. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that that's where, as you mentioned, having more data sets to work across, but it's also a question of using more and more sophisticated analytic techniques over time. Yeah, and, and more sophisticated analytic techniques and collecting more data on the family. Mm. So, yeah. so, for example, one of the things that we discovered in, in doing these diagnostic um, work, and especially um, shout out to Patrick Campbell and Hilary Martin, who kind of really drove this kind of statistical analysis, was that children who are premature are less likely to get a genetic diagnosis. Right. Um, and that suggests that there's an environmental contribution to, to their disorder. And it could well be, for example, that the reason that a, a child has a, a damaging inherited variant but has a much more severe phenotype than their parent was because there was an in utero environmental trigger in combination with the genetic variant. And that's right. an area that we really want to explore more. To get into that space, one really has to do you know, a good job of characterize, characterizing that in utero environment yeah. and using the clinical data that might be available on how that pregnancy progressed. So there's, there's so much in what you've just said that I really want to unpick. <laughs> Let me try and pull on a couple of threads. One is the work that you mentioned around trying to understand the drivers of whether a, a given child gets a diagnosis or doesn't get a diagnosis. How are you and the team thinking about correlation and causation. So for example, you mentioned a kid that's part of a trio where we have both parents as well, much more likely to get a diagnosis and that intuitively makes sense. Okay, we've got a, we've got a fuller genetic picture to, to work with and so on. Um, you also mentioned that um, folks from African ancestral backgrounds were less likely to get a diagnosis. I'm kind of making intuitive leaps here, but I, I think I'm right in saying that from having read the paper a little while ago, that part of that is because people from African ancestral backgrounds are less likely to be part of a trio. And so is that actually the causal factor or is it something in the genetics of people from an, an African uh, ancestral background? How do you go about unpicking some of those quite nuanced questions about correlation versus causation? Yes, that, that, was, uh, that was a key part of actually what Patrick and Hillary did was to kind of put all these factors together into one statistical model so that you can tease them out. And what they could show is that for example, if there's an African ancestry child who is recruited as a trio with DNA from both parents, the, the diagnostic success rate is the same as, as for other ancestries. Right. The challenge is really around when you have a, a, a um, you can't get DNA from both parents. And, and there's, there's one kind of fundamental population genetic reason for that is that individuals with African ancestry 
have more genetic variation. There is more genetic diversity in Africa. And as a consequence, the haystack is slightly larger, um, but the needle is the same size. Yeah. So there's one fundamental kind of population genetic challenge there, but there's an additional kind of challenge that we can do something about, which and I know you're passionate about this as well, is that the reference data sets of normal population variation in individuals of African ancestry are just smaller and therefore less powerful than the ones of European ancestry. And what we really need to do is enrich those African ancestry population data sets. And that's something we really can kind of hit on. And I know, and I know you guys have plans to do so. And I think that's, and that's a real global challenge, I think. Yeah. Um, and you, you, took the words out of, you took the words out of my mouth without wanting to uh, advertise our own work in the diverse data program. But um, yeah, hugely, hugely, hugely important. And I'd love your thoughts on, you mentioned earlier about back in the very early noughties, you know, there's, there's the quote unquote, the human genome from the Human Genome Project, right? Which is one genome. We're now in a position where we have hundreds of thousands, millions of genomes that have been sequenced using next generation sequencing and so on. There are a number of reference genomes out there. You just mentioned the point about the data set that a quote unquote African ancestry reference genome is based on being smaller alongside the higher level of genetic diversity within those different communities and groups in Africa because of the nature of kind of human migration and, uh, and so on. Where do we see this going, right? So you go from one reference genome that you can compare a new genome to, to saying, okay, well, let's get to five reference genomes for major ancestral groups. I don't know, East Asia and African, European, whatever. Then you're like, actually, well, come on. There's no such thing as an African genome. You know, there's Shosa populations, there's these other populations, there's these other communities. I'm making it up. Let's say there's 20 different reference genomes in, in Africa. Do we ultimately end up, and this is a bit of a nerdy question, but bear with me, with some kind of bespoke reference set for a given person's genome. So instead of having a reference genome, you say, right, this person is from this community, blah, blah, blah. The, the relevant reference set for their genome is actually dynamic rather than static. Does that make sense as a question? I realize it's a bit of a rambling. I, I, think, I think so. Um, but I, I, as a population geneticist, one of the things about humans is unusual about humans compared to other large bodied mammals <laughs> is that we actually have very little genetic diversity. We have a very recent common origin, predominantly in Africa, and only a subset of that diversity ever made it out of Africa. And that means that one reference genome actually works pretty well across populations. So I, I don't see you know, the reference genome itself, the, the genome to which we align reads to, as being a major contributor to diagnosing currently undiagnosed individuals of African ancestry, um, which I think is fortunate, but is a property of our kind of prehistory. Right. Um, you know, it could have been that we, you know, that we had a very different prehistory, that we'd had a larger, more global population for a longer period of time. And actually, maybe we really would have needed different reference genomes. I also think there are ways in which one can, technical ways in which one can compile reference genomes from around the world into one graph reference. Yeah. Um, and, and potentially use that. Um, that has been a technology that has been hugely attractive and has been kind of 18 months away from prime time for about 10 years. Like nuclear um, fusion or whatever. <laughs> so, 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 I so I think we're fortunate, I think, in a way that, that, that we do have this, this 
low genetic diversity means one reference genome, which is itself, the reference genome is itself a compendium of, of individuals. Yeah. It's not one individual. Yeah. And it's a compendium of individuals with different ancestries. And so back to the point about needing larger data sets on different populations, from your perspective, is that principally around effectively understanding the, the commonness or rareness of uh, variation from the, the reference genome in a given population? And then it's about how do you define that population that you're assessing rareness or commonness within? Yeah, it's really about you know, enriching that those kind of existing global genetic variation data resources for individuals that are, that are especially, I mean, we should be oversampling Africa because of the greater genetic diversity, not undersampling it as we have done currently. Um, so it's really, but we're fortunate that we can, we, we can sequence those individuals and map them onto a reference and get most of the value out of that um, yeah. using our standard reference. But it's really about kind of developing those projects and partnerships that enable those to be those products be done in a trustworthy way such that individuals with African, African ancestry around the world can benefit. Yeah. Let me pull on a slightly different thread now from the, the work you talked about on the DDD cohort. You mentioned involving the families in the dialogue about this, trying to understand richer phenotypic data, um, other types of data sets. What have you learned from that work and, and other work about how researchers can best interact with um, with families, with uh, whole communities who have a, a given rare condition in a way which is useful and beneficial to the families and useful and beneficial to the researchers. And obviously the research then hopefully ends up benefiting the families as well. How can we get those kind of engagement programs uh, right? That's a really good question. I think certainly in, I mean, being a research project and, and DDD, all the families are, are, are completely anonymous to me and, and my research team. We really work through the clinical community um, to, to, to have that interaction, which is, which is a, you know, a, a bit different from the kind of engagement that you've done with many of the participants much more directly. And, uh, and I think that and it's very inspiring what, what you guys have done. I mean, I, certainly when I, when I think about what we've kind of, we did a really good job at the time of working out what data to collect on families and what clinicians could reasonably provide in, in a period of time that enabled us to do a large scale study. But it wasn't the ideal. You know, I think the ideal would be something that involved both record linkage, uh, especially to healthcare uh, records to enable us to get a much big, fuller picture so, for example, in, in, in DDD, we have very light phenotypic information on the parents of children. Um, and so if one does identify a variant that's inherited from a parent and, 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 and looks like it might be relevant in the child, there's, it's very limited what we can do in terms of following that up in terms of, you know, was there any, you know, uh, unusual developmental history of that parent that might support the idea that that variant is actually playing a role in the child? Whereas in the 100,000 Genomes Project, because you have uh, worked with the participants to do health record linkage equally well in the parents and the children, that now gives us an opportunity that, you know, in my group, we're now, you know, working on at the moment, which is to, to actually interrogate that, that kind of question at the next level of granularity using that linked healthcare data. I think the other thing that we, we did was, was working with Swan UK and Unique kind of patient support and advocacy groups at the time to kind of represent the interests of the participants 
was really helpful. And, and you got a real sense there of patients and families being the real experts of their condition, but not really at the time having the mechanism by which they could contribute to enriching the phenotypic data, double checking the phenotypic data, yeah. making sure it really you know, represents their child and their family in the most accurate way. Um, and I think that's a real opportunity. And, and I know something that you're exploring and I'm very keen to kind of, you know, help with that in thinking through how can we allow families to, to, to contribute and, and, and effectively be a participant in the research process yeah. and increase the probability that they'll get a useful answer for their family out of it. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's a fascinating area. A, a couple of thoughts strike me and I'm kind of spitballing here, but w one is that we know that electronic health records are not great. Um, in terms of accuracy, depth, um, et cetera, which is no criticism of the health system or of, of those uh, you know, platforms. NHS Digital ran a, um, a pilot in Leeds a little while ago where people with the NHS app had popped up and said, um, would you like to check that your phone number and address and email address are correct in NHS records? Most of the people who got the pop-up clicked on it and most of them then made a change to <laughs> that information. That's just your name, email address, phone number and home address, right? <laughs> let alone the details of, um, you know, a, a specific element about how frequently do you have seizures or, you know, if you have a short left leg, how short is it compared to your other leg? And, you know, is there a foot on it? Does the foot have toes? It's a, these sort of much more granular pieces of phenotypic information. And so I think it, it does feel like there's a huge opportunity to do that in dialogue. And it, it's interesting to see what some organizations in the private sector have done, like 23andMe, around engaging with uh, people who use that app and, as far as I understand, those communities are super willing to really invest the time and thought to make that as rich um, a data set as possible. How do you think in, I was about to say the real world, but like in the world of academia, the NHS, um, you know, public policy in the UK, we could best do that practically? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a number of bits where, where families are already providing information to the healthcare system. It's just not cascading through into the these kind of research data sets and so so one example that i think is really interesting is the red book the digital you know which is which you know we have on our three kids the red book where you track you know the the growth of your child you know and, and various other things that is it's almost know, a physical... sort of it's got a sacred kind of status doesn't it in families <laughs> exactly and it has a physical but I, you know i understand that's moving to a digitized form you know very shortly and certainly in in DDD, we found that collecting that kind of measurement information was actually hugely helpful. Um, and we could identify certain uh, new disorders because there was a very unusual growth pattern, for example, uh, in the children. Uh, we collected that in DDD. It took quite a lot of effort to, to collect that. But the advent of a digital red book means that, you know, that should be an additional piece of information that the families are already providing to the, to the health service, which would cascade through you know, with the right kind of connections and linkages into the research. So there's that kind of opportunity. There's also the fact that NHS Digital only has a very high level view of the, of the health data available and hospitals and hospitals, uh, you know, EHRs often have a much more granular view and finding mechanisms by which we can have that more granular kind of data come through into the research environment, I think is really uh, important. And then the third strand is, of course, that engagement, direct engagement, and having the platforms that um, families want to engage with that give them information back, but also enable them to contribute more information. Um, yeah. and, and that's in, in an, I think, those, that kind of combination of deeper linkages, 
you know, new, you know, new ways of bringing information in from, from the healthcare system and families contributing will create amazing data sets that allow us to answer questions we have in our minds now, but also questions we, we don't have in our minds. So yeah. and I can give you one really good example of a question that I don't think anyone had in their mind that we just recently managed to kind of publish and, uh, and work our way through using the, the 100,000 Genomes Project data, which is that we identified the small number of families where children had a very unusually large number of new mutations that their parents didn't have. And there's a fundamental, there's a, you know, the DNA is copied incredibly well from generation to generation, but one in every 50 million letters of DNA is erroneously copied on, in everyone. Um, and these children had about, rather than one in 50 million, had more like one in 10 million. So it was maybe a five times higher mutation rate, which is incredibly unusual. And just to be clear, there's a, you know, a tiny number of families, about 11 families out of the 13,000 trios in, in the, the John Rick's England data set that we looked at that have this property. So it's a very rare thing. But what we were able to do was for a number of those families, about five of those families, we could look back into the parental health data and see that the father had been treated with a chemotherapy Due to typically due to a cancer prior to the child being conceived. And we could also link up the chemotherapy that was used which, uh, with a particular mutational signature that we could see in the child. And so I don't think anyone at the outset who thought, let's do healthcare linkage, let's make sure we do it for the parents as well as, well as the children, was thinking about the effect of chemotherapy potentially on new mutations in a child. But that's the key value of these general data sets as they allow mm. you to ask completely new, unthought-of questions. Wow, that's that's an absolutely fascinating, fascinating story. So we're already dealing with an extraordinary amount of complexity here. 3.2 billion, you know, base pairs in DNA, all of the complexities we've just been talking about, about clinical data, where it resides, you know, deep phenotyp phenotypical data. Just blow our minds a little bit with you know, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics. How are you and the team thinking about those kind of other molecular data sets, imaging data sets? Is this just gonna explode all of our minds? How can we use it productively to get to more diagnosis, more patient impact? How far along on the, I guess, the arc from fundamental research to kind of clinical application do you think we are? So I think you know, looking just purely through a diagnostic lens. So there's, there's two kind of lenses one can look at this. One is through a, a mechanistic lens, like you know, how can we use these additional layers of data to understand the mechanism by which the genetic variant gives rise to the condition, potentially think therefore about where, where there might be opportunities to intervene therapeutically. But through a purely diagnostic lens, the big challenge that we have is that we don't know what most variants do. We don't know if they're damaging or not, um, even in genes which we are absolutely confident are associated with disease. So, for example, there are about 1,500 genes that are associated with developmental disorders that are robustly associated, that are used diagnostically. Only about 10% of the variants in those genes have ever been seen in a human before. So 90% have never been seen in a human before. And most of the diagnoses we make in the DDD study are in that 90% of variants we've never seen before. And so the big challenge we have is how well can we distinguish between variants that do cause a disease that fall in the gene and variants that don't. And we know that most variants 
don't cause disease already. Yeah. Um, so we can see plenty of people out there in the general population, you know, who have variants in those genes, but don't cause disease. So it's not just I see a variant in a gene there and that genes associated with disease, therefore it must be the cause. So this, this is known as the variant of uncertain significance problem. And it's yeah. a big blocker on, on the genomic medicine in general. And there's two kind of you know, ways in which one can think about using these data sets to kind of solve that. One is to, to for a given disorder, for a given um, disorder caused by damaging mutations in a gene, to define some multiomic signature that is characteristic of that disorder. Um, so that could be a kind of unusual pattern of RNA. It could be an unusual pattern of DNA methylation. There's about over 50 neurodevelopmental disorder genes now where there's a disease-specific pattern of DNA methylation in blood. So not in brain, but in blood so, you know, that we can test. And that is very that can be diagnostically very useful to characterize uh, a sample from a patient who has a variant of uncertain significance and be able to say, yes, it is or isn't damaging. So that's that kind of approach, which is the kind of reactive approach. I've seen a variant yeah. in a patient, therefore I do another assay. The thing that's really exciting me at the moment is the prospect of doing those kinds of uh, assays in cells where one can make every single possible mutation in a gene and read out whether it's damaging or not. And so have proactively determined which are the variants that are likely to be diagnostically relevant and which are likely to be benign. And this is a new technology that's just coming along. And we're currently, this field is very much in its infancy, but it's, it feels like a human genome project in the making. It feels like the very early stages of the human genome project where we know that fundamentally this is, this is the information we need to be able to interpret every variant in the genome, which is where we want to get to. Um, that we're going to be, it's going to get us there quicker than sequencing patients, even, even over decades, over, over all countries in the world. But we have a technology which currently doesn't enable us to scale. We can do one gene or two genes. We need to do 4,000 genes. And just un unpick that for us a tiny bit. Like, how, how are you and the team exploring that? Or how do you see that being deployed? So, so I think it fits, in, in, in terms of a, a deployment, it fits well within the existing frameworks by which clinicians interpret genetic variation. So there, there, there is a, uh, one can use functional data, as it's called, to upweight or downweight a genetic variant. And what we're talking here is about systematically generating that functional data. So in many respects, a lot of the practice framework is in place. What's not in place is the technical ability to generate those data and disseminate them to all the places it needs to go to, to every clinician's decision support interface around the world. And what we're doing at the moment is building a community of, of researchers and companies who are infused by this vision. Um, it's called the Atlas of Variant Effects, is the thing that we, we, we want to build, uh, and generate that community and expand that community uh, and uh, enable that community to collectively generate these maps of variant effects in every one, every single disease gene over the next five to 10 years. It's super exciting. And I'm conscious we're, we're close up on time, but um, maybe a, a couple of questions to just sort of look to the future. One is at Genomics England, we're in the process of um, putting together this program around uh, newborn sequencing alongside the sort of uh, Hillprick test. And for anyone interesting, just, just Google 
genomics england newborns and the whole thing will pop up if that all goes according to plan which we hope it will we will have a relationship with um a hundred thousand families who've chosen to take part in the study who understand what's involved and whose baby will have their uh, genome sequence kind of at birth to flag potential uh, issues that affect kids in early life, create an amazing data set for, for research into those conditions for, for patient benefit. And there will also be the first cohort of kids um, to be born with their genome on file. What for you are the implications of that? And how might, how might we see that help, helping to advance the, these kinds of insights over you know, almost the next generation, so to speak? So I think I think I and, and, and many people who, who think about this think this is this is the end state, you know, that people will have, you know, in 50 years time, people will have their genome at birth and that'll be used clinically, potentially non-clinically to people find value in that. And I think one of the challenges thinking about how do we get from where we are now to that that position? And the thing that's so exciting, I think, about the newborns program is it's one of the few routes by which you can see that happening. Um, because, because it is not just a narrow focus on the, on the kind of how does this augment the newborn screening that we're already doing, but there's also the forward-looking thinking about how might this information be used in the future? How can we make it available to a broad research community who can bring that, that kind of future into being? And I think that the, there's only going to be what you know a small number of these initiatives that are really catalyzing and i think what will then happen is other countries other countries who want to undertake you know genomic medicine programs that are nationwide that cover multiple domains of of the use of genomic information will think okay we need to do this as well let's make let's see how this would work in a, in in our context so i think i'm hugely enthused because it, it, it's it's been easy to say everyone will have their genome at birth in some decades time it's been hard to plot a route by how we get there and i think yeah. i think a route that 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 has an ongoing relationship with participants and is has a, a way of a trustworthy way of engaging the research community to kind of um, to think about how can we get the value out of the genomic information that's useful for the healthcare service but also is useful for the participants themselves you know mm -hmm. what what information do they want how do they want to, to use their information? You know, one of the things I'm acutely aware of is that you know, we're often diagnosing children with neurodevelopmental disorders at the age of six or later. And many of those parents will, will, will be thinking, had I had that information earlier, what might we have done that might have improved the outcomes for my child? And it's very hard to see how we would ever answer that question for them without doing a program such as this. Hugely inspiring, and we we need to leave it um, here. We might have to get you back on uh, to the pod for a follow up conversation at some point because there's just too many too many interesting topics to uh, explore with you. But um, in the meantime, a final quick fire question is part of the rationale behind us having this podcast and having these uh, conversations is to try and have more of a national conversation around genomics as it's coming more into the mainstream. Are there either any themes or any individual people who you think we don't hear enough about or from? Um, who else should we get onto the pod? Well, I mean, it's maybe a bit challenging, but I think there's some really interesting work being done on how genetic variation influences child outcomes in a, in a kind of more in an educational sense than a, than in a clinical sense. Um, and, I, and I think there's a, and it's a, it's a contentious area. 
I think. Um, but it is something that, that, that I think is well supported by the data and we have to engage with as a society. I think the risk is not engaging with, with where the data and research is taking us. We can see, for example, there are genetic variants that are clearly diagnoses for patients in 100,000 Genomes Project that we also see in people in the general population in population cohorts such as UK Biobank. And we can clearly see in populations such as UK Biobank, those genetic variants are clearly having an influence on the outcomes of those individuals. And, uh, so, and, and, and that currently we're looking through two very different lenses. You know, we're looking at this clinical lens and this population lens. In this era, 50 years hence, where everyone's got their genome, that'll be one lens. And, and, and we need to have a set of conversations over a period of time that starts to bring those two lenses together. Yeah, um, hugely inspiring. So yeah, learn, learning more and more about how we work, how we can each be living our best lives. Um, this is the, uh, the mission ahead of us, um, challenge accepted. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Incredibly inspiring to talk to you as always. And uh, thanks it's again. It's been a great pleasure, Chris. And I'm delighted that you're A, doing this podcast and, and B, have had so much positive feedback and a big audience for it because it's really important. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.